Good morning, good morning. Good to see you on this 30th anniversary of the Whittier Narrows Quake. Where were you 30 years ago today? I was on the tarmac out at Ontario and they said as we were taking off, there's just been a report of a major earthquake in Los Angeles. And I thought, we've been through these before. And then as we rose above the San Gabriel Mountains, the pilot said, you can look out the right side of the plane and see the dust rising off the desert. And I swallowed hard and we flew east. <laughs> and I came back and my parents had moved me out of the building in which I was living. They had to raise it later and it, it was a life changer. Maybe it was for you too, but anyway, I digress. That was 30 years ago today. Uh, last week we were in Genesis chapter 14, and you'll remember that Dave Talley introduced us to a number of persons, one of whom was Melchizedek. Well, today we're going to bear down and focus on Melchizedek, and we're going to look at him in Hebrews chapter 7. So you'll want to turn there. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but uh, let me preface, preface it by saying this. Uh, it's thick. <laughs> the weeds are tall. So hang in there, put one foot in front of the other, I'll get you through, and then when I'm done reading, I'll let you come up for air, all right? And so you'll, you'll be fine, but uh, hang in there as we read Hebrews chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, 
who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Thus far, God's word. One of the nice things about living back in Southern California is that there are many nice places to take out-of-town visitors. Uh, The beach, the mountains, uh, the Grove, Rodeo Drive, Disney, Knott's, you know all these places better than I do. One of the challenges about living in Grant County, Indiana, like we did for 14 years, is that there is no place to take out-of-town guests, at least on par with the aforementioned list. Now, to be sure, there are a few local points of interest. Uh, The town of Matthews has a covered bridge. Uh, Upland has an old railroad depot. But... If you had come to visit me in rural Indiana, there's probably only one place that had the chance of grabbing your attention. So upon arriving, I'd have put you in the car and we'd have pulled out of the driveway onto County Road 700 South. And we'd have traveled west over the Mississippi River to Wheeling Pike. Turn right on Wheeling Pike, under the interstate, down to State Road 9, turn left, reconnect with 700 South, pull off to the side of the road, at which time I would point across the road and ask you this question. Do you know who grew up in that white farmhouse over there? And you would immediately immediately reply, I have absolutely no idea. And then I would say with great glee, movie star James Dean. 
And then you would ooh and ah as I was slipping the car back into gear and we continued down State Road 9 past the Indian motorcycle shop outside of which Dean used to hang out with his buddies and then by the Back Creek Friends Church in which his funeral was held. And then finally, we'd get to Park Cemetery where Dean's mortal remains lie beneath what we called it the mortuary when I worked there in Uptown Whittier, uh, uh, a Texas red stone, kind of a pinkish colored marker. I'm sure you're wondering, what does James Dean have anything to do with unlocking the mysteries of Melchizedek? Well, I have concluded that Melchizedek is the James Dean of the Bible. And let me give you three reasons why I have come to this conclusion. First of all, James Dean is is featured in only three movies, uh, East of Eden, Rebel Without a Cause, and Giant. Melchizedek is featured in three Bible passages, Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then Hebrews 5 through 7. Second, only one of James Dean's movies was released during his lifetime. The other two came after his sudden and tragic death, actually 62 years ago yesterday, up on State Road 46 outside of Chalami, uh, near Paso Robles. You compare that with the fact that only one of Melchizedek's three passages is written about his lifetime. The second one was written a thousand years after he died. The third one was written 2,000 years after he died. Finally, both of these men, Melchizedek and James Dean, they boast legacies that are far larger than their lives. Consider Dean. He only made three motion pictures And yet he continues to make a greater impact on American culture than most of his contemporaries, especially in the area of fashion. Time Magazine has James Dean as uh, one of the 100 fashion icons of all time, popularizing an ensemble that begins with uh, Levi's and a white t-shirt and a well-worn leather jacket. He's also been memorialized time and again in popular music. The Eagles wrote a song about James Dean. Hilary Duff sings a song about James Dean. And then he's mentioned in more than a dozen other popular songs, some of which are sung by Beyonce and Lady Gaga and Billy Joel and John Mellencamp and Taylor Swift. Dean's also made a lasting impact on the culture at large. Even 62 years after his death, Dean continues to be the symbol of brooding teenage angst. And as one writer put it, the poster child for effortless American cool. Now, compare that to Melchizedek, who only appears in a pair of Old Testament passages. That's it. But he gets as much ink in in the New Testament and arguably in places more significant ink than many other well-known Old Testament personalities. And Melchizedek's not even well-known. 
So who is this shadowy figure that rises up in the early chapters of Genesis, this towering character whose fame was forged on a cameo role? Well, unlocking the mystery of Melchizedek requires taking a look at the three passages in which he is mentioned. In fact, we need to look at them in progressive order because the first one unlocks the second one, which unlocks the third one. So we'll begin by looking at Genesis chapter 14, where the mystery of Melchizedek's identity is unlocked, and then Psalm 110, where the mystery of Melchizedek's significance is unlocked, and then finally Hebrews chapter 7, where the mystery of Melchizedek's legacy is unlocked, a legacy that reaches down through time right into the present age, right into this room and even the seat in which you're seated. And as we look at Melchizedek in these ways, I hope I hope, I hope that you see the Lord, and I hope that you see him with greater clarity and understanding how he's rooting for you, how he's pleading for you, even in your incalcitrance, and how he secured for you a future that's sure and steadfast, even amidst the turbulence of the world, even the world within. So that's the way forward this morning. We'll start in Genesis chapter 14, where we will be unlocking the mystery of Melchizedek's identity. Now, last week, Dave Talley preached on Genesis chapter 14. And you may remember that he pointed out from chapter 12 to 14, sometimes Abram's faithful and sometimes Abram's faithless. On the front end of 12, he's faithful. On the back end of 12, he's faithless. We get into 13 and 14, and he's once again faithful. In short, Abram's faith is a growing faith, proof of which, as Dave pointed out, is seen when Abram is approached by two kings. One king is the king of Sodom, whose people and stuff uh, Abram rescued from the marauding Ketileomer along with his nephew Lot. And uh, the king of Sodom, he approaches Abram with a business deal. He wants to make Abram wealthy, but Abram refuses the king of Sodom by saying in verses 22 and 23, if I get rich, it's going to be by God's hand and not yours. The other king by whom Abram is approached is Melchizedek. And it's here that we begin to unlock the mystery of his identity. Melchizedek is king of Salem. Uh, But not only is he king, that is the ruling authority, but he is also priest of Most High God. He's the spiritual authority as well. You see that in verse number 19. And unlike the the king of Sodom who is interested in, in a business deal, Melchizedek is interested in blessing. And so as king, Melchizedek blesses Abram with refreshment. The common man eats bread and water, so Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, which is reserved for uh, royalty. And then he also, as a priest, blesses Abram with a benediction. Good words, we see those in verses 19 and 20, by which he acknowledges God's 
blessing on Abram and then blesses Abram's God because Melchizedek is also a worshiper of Abram's God. He believes in that God. And not only does he believe in that God, but he believes in the words of those God, that God, especially the promise found in chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. So it's no wonder that after blessing Abram, Abram blesses Melchizedek by giving him a tenth of all of his hard-earned spoils. You see, whereas the king of Sodom, who represents the world at its worst, an ancient Hugh Hefner, if you will, whereas the king of Sodom wanted to give riches to Abraham, the king of Salem, who represents the very possessor of heaven and earth, verses 19 and 22, was given riches by Abraham. In fact, in a chapter filled with kings, all of whom to whom we were uh, introduced by Dave Talley last week, Abram bows to only one, and that's Melchizedek. So that's our only glimpse of this shadowy figure during his life. It's brief, but it's defining, and it unlocks for us the mystery of his identity. He is the king of Salem, and he is a priest of Most High God. Now, if Genesis chapter 14 unlocks the mystery of Melchizedek's identity, then Psalm 110 unlocks the significance of that identity. Now, to be sure, there were many priests and kings in the ancient world, so So what makes the priest king Melchizedek any more significant than the rest? Well, Psalm 110 was written by David. In fact, it was written upon the ascendancy, his ascendancy to the throne. So there's one sense in which David is writing about himself, but there's also another sense in which he's writing about somebody else because this psalm is what is known as a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that's intended to help God's people better understand and identify the coming son of David, the Messiah, the long-awaited for Christ. Uh, You know by now in this series in Genesis that God's people had been searching ever since chapter 3, verse 15, for the snake crusher, the one who would overcome our mortal adversary. And so to help with that search, God has provided special persons known as types. These types who appear throughout Old Testament history define the shape of the Christ, but are in and of themselves not the substance of the Christ. So, for example, Moses typifies Christ's prophetic role, but he himself is not the Christ. Job typifies Christ's suffering but he himself is not the Christ. Uh, Boaz typifies Christ's redeeming role, but he himself is not the Christ. These persons pointed to the Messiah like highway signs point to a destination. If you've ever lived anywhere from Maine to Minnesota, you know that those points and everyone in between is a giant corridor come spring break for students to travel to Daytona Beach. Um, 
you can imagine how exciting that trip is, especially if the temperatures that you're leaving are sub-freezing. I remember my senior year in college, it was 10 degrees when we left suburban Chicago to head for the beach and those balmy, uh, warm temperatures. In fact, I wouldn't blame a carload of students upon seeing the first sign that said Daytona Beach to let out a big whoop, pull off, buy a celebratory meal because it's a great moment. It's a significant moment. It says we're going the right way. It says the snowy fields are behind us and the sandy beaches are before us. Warmer temps, warmer weather to come. So like a sign pointing toward the lapping waves of Daytona, Psalm 110 points down the highway of history toward the coming Christ. And smack dab in the middle of that billboard is Melchizedek. He has the starring role. See, without Psalm 110, Melchizedek is just another historical figure like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. But with Psalm 110, Melchizedek not only points to the past, but to the future as well, to someone like himself, but even greater than himself. So how does Psalm 110 point to Christ? Well, in verses 1 through 3, we see that the Christ is a king. In verse 1, he's a powerful king. In verse 2, he's a ruling king. In verse 3, he's a beloved king. King. And then in verse 4, we see that the Christ is also a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who himself was also a king. In fact, he was a priest king. And concerning this role as an eternal priest or intercessor, the Lord swears to its creation and refuses to change his mind about that role. So in Psalm 110, we unlock the significance of Melchizedek's identity. David, writing as the a Jewish king from the present Jerusalem, identifies Melchizedek, a Gentile priest king, over ancient Jerusalem, because that's what Salem was. It was the future Jerusalem. He would not be a forgotten figure of history. Instead, he would be the one who foreshadowed, who typified the coming Messiah thereby infusing his ancient identity with a profound sense of significance. Of course, the temptation, even in Jesus' day, was to more highly revere the ones who pointed to Christ as opposed to revering Christ himself. The Jews answered Jesus, Abraham is our father. Abraham was a Christ, John 8, 39. Or, We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for Jesus, we don't know where he comes from, John 9, 29. We do the same thing. We do the same thing when we pay greater deference to what John Piper says about Jesus than the words of Jesus. We do the same thing when we pay greater deference to what Nancy Guthrie says about Jesus or Kevin DeYoung says about Jesus, or Jen Wilkin says about Jesus, or Tim Keller says about Jesus, or Rosaria Butterfield says about Jesus, or H.B. Charles says about Jesus, or any other teacher du jour than what Jesus has to say about himself. 
In fact, many Jews who lived in Jesus' day were like a carload of collegians who upon seeing that first billboard to Daytona jumped out of the car, opened the trunk, pulled out the blankets and chairs, and settled down to begin celebrating spring break. It was ridiculous. A sign that points to Daytona is not Daytona. In fact, its significance pales in comparison to those sandy beaches. And in the same way, a type that points to Christ is not the Christ, since its shape pales in comparison to the beautiful substance of its fulfillment. So, as significant as Melchizedek turns out to be in Psalm 110, his significance is only a key that now further unlocks the mystery of his legacy. So go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 7, where the scripture expands upon Melchizedek's significance as well as his superiority. And in this passage, by way of this passage, reaches down through time into the present day, into this room, and right into the chair where you are seated. Well, to begin, Hebrews 7 further develops the significance of Melchizedek by revealing how he foreshadowed the character of Christ. The character of Christ. Melchizedek was a king. He was even a priest king, something that no Jewish priest could ever be since rulers came from the tribe of Judah and priests came from the tribe of Levi. But Jesus was the ultimate priest king to which Melchizedek pointed. Since he's the one about whom the uh, prophet wrote, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Zechariah 6.13. Furthermore, the significance of, of Melchizedek is seen in the kind of king he foreshadowed. He was king of righteousness and he was king of peace. He was king of righteousness because that's what his name meant. You see that there in verse number two. And he was king of peace because that was the name of the town over which he ruled. That's what Salem means is peace, shalom, salam, city of peace, king of peace. And of course, these two characteristics come together in the Messiah, of whom the psalmist writes, in the Lord, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Psalm 85, 10. Not only does the writer of Hebrews reveal how Melchizedek foreshadowed the character of Christ, He shows us how Melchizedek typified the qualifications of Christ. For instance, Melchizedek has no genealogy. We see that there in verse 3. And as a genealogist, I'm very interested to know what that means. And so we find out that what it means is he had no priestly genealogy. He was neither a descendant of Aaron or a descendant of Levi. But then neither was Jesus. He was a descendant of the royal tribe of Judah, not the priestly tribe of Levi. And the point here is this. The priesthood of Melchizedek, the priesthood of Christ, are entirely based on the call of God and not their heredity. 
They were appointed as priests of God Most High. Chapter 5, verse 5. Years ago, I I nudged a buddy of mine, chided him a bit for getting an honorary degree from a university. He said, hey, anyone can get accepted and do their time and be obligated to receive one. Very few people actually get them, handed to them. That's what happened to Jesus. That's that's what Melchizedek was all about. They weren't from priestly tribes. They were appointed. They were given the office by God himself. Further, Melchizedek had no beginning nor end. We see that also in verse number three. That is, while Levitical priests served limited terms, in fact, they couldn't serve any longer than 30 years, there was no set beginning or end to Melchizedek's life, foreshadowing what was realized in Christ, that is, one who continues as a priest forever. Verse number three. Now, if you're asleep at this moment, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up because this next point slapped me right in the face this past week. What's more, the temporal Levitical priests could only enter the Holy of Holies once a year for a specific amount of time and with great fear and trembling. Whereas the eternal priest, typified by Melchizedek, fulfilled in Jesus, he lives in the Holy of Holies. That's his place. He's there now, he's been there, he'll be there forever. He is constantly interceding on your behalf for blessing, for love, for grace, for mercy, for peace, for hope, for whatever your need is right now. Jesus is pleading for you before the throne. How beautiful. Just as the sun continues shining throughout the darkness of night, even though it's on the other side of the world, so Jesus continues pouring out life-giving light during the dark nights of our soul. As the author of Hebrews writes, he always lives to make intercession for us. Always. Verse 25. So the author of Hebrews further develops the significance of Melchizedek by revealing how he foreshadows the character of Christ and the qualifications of Christ. He then expands upon the superiority of Christ in a couple of ways. First of all, as it concerns tithing, the the superiority of tithing. In the ancient world, tithing was a sign of superiority and subjection. So as great as Abram was, he recognized Melchizedek to be a person, as one writer put it, of arching superiority and worthy of a tenth of his spoils. In fact, literally, the top of the heap, the the choice, choicest part of what he had captured. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abram the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And then to heighten the superiority of Melchizedek, these tithes were received from one whose priestly descendants were of an inferior order. You see, Levitical priests, again, were a limited order. They only served for a time. They didn't live on and on because they eventually died. While Melchizedek was of an unlimited order since he served, as it were, for all time. Take a look at verse 9. 
One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So this act of tithing, that the limited blessing, the unlimited, enlarges Melchizedek's messianic profile. Now, not only is Melchizedek superior in terms of tithing, but he is also superior in terms of blessing. Once again, in the ancient world, the superior always blesses the inferior. So just as Abram knew he must tithe to Melchizedek, he also knew that he must bow and receive his blessing. As a profound act of humility coming from the one to whom God personally said, through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But as great as Melchizedek was, even though he was the king of righteousness, even though he was the king of peace, he could never make men righteous nor could he ever give them peace because Melchizedek was only a type. Gratefully, righteousness and peace kissed in Christ. And as one writer has put it, that is the kiss that the king repeatedly bestows upon his bride. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. That is the legacy of Melchizedek fulfilled in Christ and extending down to the present day, extending to you here this morning. And so the question for you as we begin to wind down is simply this, for what do you need the comforting kisses of Christ today? If it's righteousness, then the king of righteousness will supply it. Not only by giving you righteousness, but making you righteous by giving you himself. The word tells us that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If it's peace, then the king of peace will give you peace by giving you himself because as Paul writes, he is our peace. And in giving you himself, he puts you at peace with him. He puts you at peace with others, even your enemies. He puts you at peace with your own person. These things, righteousness and peace, he will give you. And he'll give them to you with all sympathy, chapter 4, verse 15, with all security as it relates to your future, chapter 6, verse 19, and without ceasing, chapter 7, verse 25, he will keep giving and giving and giving and giving. And these are the realities that you need to be constantly preaching to yourself. Even this morning, at oh dark 30, with coffee in hand, I sat down on the sofa and opened the word and began preaching these things to myself. Realities that keep you from going under in a storm-tossed world that is constantly trying to rob you of your righteousness and compromise your peace. Realities that will grow your faith just like Abram's, even after you failed. Again, and again, and again, and again, and again, 
and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And again. Because he keeps on giving realities that will enlarge and enliven you. As well as your vision of Christ, who is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Why don't you take a moment and let go of your unrighteousness and embrace the king of righteousness and be embraced by him. Let go of your conflict and be embraced by the king of peace. And as you do recognize that these two are one, foreshadowed in Melchizedek, fulfilled in Christ now and forevermore. Heavenly Father, grant us your righteousness and peace and the fullness of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.